Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another episode of Soul Talk. We've had some amazing guests uh, over the last weeks, everyone from Dennis Waitley to uh, Dr. Shafali to, um, wow, who else have we had on? We had uh, Dennis Waitley, Shafali, um, just, just, we have some incredible guests also in store for you folks. Uh, Jack Canfield has been on. I know many of you enjoyed that, that episode. And, uh, you know, each week I try and bring to you some unique guests, uh, along with sharing some of my insights and wisdoms and practical life wisdoms and advice. Uh, in today's episode, I have someone that I think is going to be a little different. I think is going to be bring a unique perspective, a little different from the typical Soul Talk podcast. I've been uh, checking out uh, this guy's work over the years online. Uh, he's done some really interesting things. Uh, he he came out with a book, uh, I think it was in 2006, called, I hope, check, check this, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. It was a number one New York Times bestseller, made the bestseller list each year from 2006 to 2012, which, let me tell you, as someone who launched the book uh, less than a couple of years ago, it is not easy selling books. His book sold over 1 million copies, including 400,000 copies in 2009 alone. So I think for any of you out there uh, listening to this podcast who have visions to launch a book, to publish, to create anything, uh, I'm really excited to just kind of tap into this guy's brain, his mind, his heart, his, his experience, and just find out what it's taken for him to to sell books, to succeeding publishing. He's doing some amazing things in publishing now. I think that this guy's going to be a wealth of experience and resource for all of you listening in. Folks, let's welcome to the Soul Talk podcast, Tucker Max. Tucker, welcome. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, man. So listen, I'm just curious. I mean, you've had a, a very interesting history and uh, you're up to some really, really cool things now. Uh, I just want to just just jump straight in. You know, we're talking about in this podcast soul talk, but we're also talking about what it takes to live a fulfilling life, a successful life. You've achieved, you know, quite a level of success in in, in many different areas: publishing, online, uh, producing. Uh, you've made movies. So I'm curious if I were just to ask you the question straight up front: what, what is what is success to you? What is based on everything you've learned? What is success? What have you come to? So you mean what is success or how do you achieve it? Because there are different uh, No. Ha, ha, firstly, how do you define success? Then I want to get to how you've achieved success. So okay. how do you All define right. success? So I'm 42 now, and I think I didn't come to a good realization of what success actually is until I was maybe – 35, probably a little bit older, somewhere between 35 and 38. 
and and, and I, what I realized, it took me a lot of lot of success and a lot of failure to realize that really only two things matter: the relationships you have with the people you love, and the work that you do that makes their lives better and the lives of other people. And that's it. Those are the only two things. So the relationships and the work and everything else is quite frankly, just nonsense. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. The relationships you have and the work. So in terms of achieving success, let's say someone listening to this conversation, they're starting out and maybe not, they're not quite where they want to be in life. They're stuck. Uh, Maybe they've had a few failures. Perhaps, you know, they've lost hope a little bit, wondering, how do I crack the code? Uh, What's the first step, based on your experience, like what's the first step someone can take in terms of the process or the path to to achieving success? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question because it does kind of depend – it depends on a lot of factors, but if I had to kind of look at it from the 30,000 foot view, um, I think yeah. the, really the, the very first step is understanding um, what do you want to spend your time doing? You know, because here's the thing, if you chase success, I feel like it's very difficult to achieve, but if you go chase um, or if you go after uh, work that you find enjoyable that produces value for people, then you can almost always find that. And then from there, once you have that foothold, you can you can grow. You know, like th- there's a there's a great Buddhist saying that um, it goes like this: If you want the trophy, focus on the target, because when you focus on the target, you'll hit it. But if you focus on the trophy, you'll miss the target and you get nothing. And I think that's what the mistake that most people who are focused on success do. They're looking at the trophy, right? They're looking at the Lamborghinis or the money or the houses, and they're not focusing on, like, how. look, when you really break it down, the way that you make money is very simple, especially the way you make money in an ethical, moral way is very, very simple. You have to produce value for other people in the world. Right. And so like, like at, at a core level that success is you, you will make money if you produce value for other people. But then the, the element of that, that people, most people leave out is they're like, okay, well, like I just going to go make money. I don't care about if I enjoy the job or even some people, like, I don't even care if it's ethical, but let's say your audience isn't like that. They want to do something ethical, mm-hmm. but they just want to make money. They don't care if they enjoy the job then it's like, I'm looking at them like you're never going to be successful ever because mm. at, at, at best work is at least a third of your life, if not more. And so yeah. you're telling me yeah. you're going to sacrifice a third of your life mm. for what? It doesn't make any sense, you know? So, so yeah. I, the, yeah. I've always looked at it like the intersection of do, what do you want to spend your time doing? Not necessarily passion, all that stuff's kind of nonsense. What do you actually want to spend your time doing on a day-to-day level? And then of those things, what actually produces value for the world? And if you go into those areas and you start looking and start working and really develop skills, then it's, it's pretty easy actually to be successful. Does that make sense? What about like, yeah, no, I, I, lo- I love the, the practicality of what you're saying. Uh, I, I definitely am in alignment. Like what about folks who, 
you know, they, 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 they want to help people, Tucker, and they're like, I, I want to help people. I want to be a coach or I want to, you know, maybe in the spiritual field that I'm in, I, I want to be a healer, a coach, write books. And, and they say, cool, I, I'm, 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 I help people. I give advice. I, add, I, I feel like I freaking add value, but I'm broke. And, and I've helped all these people, but I'm making no money. Is there a... Is there a mistake that they're making, or something that those folks yeah. might be missing? Even though, they, like, what is the, what is the key distinction there? Yeah, so there's usually one of two things going on, and they're very, very different, right? So, the the in the majority of those times where people um, mm-hmm. say that, I think what's going on is that there, to be really starkly honest and a little bit harsh, they're probably yeah. just full of crap. You know, like most coaches become coaches because they are messed up and they're trying, instead of healing themselves, they're trying to justify (laughs) their self-worth by by going to to help other people with a problem that they have, you know? And the the Mm. reality is most coaches, that's a great strategy if you have already done the work yourself and if you are Mm. in a position to truly help others, that is a great strategy. But most people start that long, long before they're ready, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And which, again, you can agree. It yeah. is a really good strategy to, 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 as a way to start healing yourself to help others. But then you've got you to start at the bottom, you know? Because like, that is mm-hmm. one thing I, I absolutely believe is true. No matter if you have zero skills and nothing going for you in your life, the thing you can always do is go help somebody. Always. There's always somebody yeah. who needs yeah. your help. So that is true. Yeah. But most people who are trying to do it for a living are just quite frankly not ready at all, and they don't have the skills necessary to to be able to sustain, uh, create enough value to be able to charge from it. So I think that's, let's say, 70% of the people. And then the Mm -hmm. other 30%, I think, have the opposite problem. The other 30%, I think, actually are really good at what they do, and they have really healed themselves enough to be at a point where they can give other people advice and wisdom and coaching who are kind of in the spot they used to be. Um, yep. And those people, I think, tend to, they tend to, in the broadest sense, undervalue themselves. They either undervalue themselves mm. or they don't run their, they don't run their coaching like a business. Right. And mm. uh, for and there's a couple different, there's two different things going on there. I think a lot of women definitely, especially true with women, they undervalue themselves. I see so many women who are so wise and so smart and have done so much work on themselves and have really genuinely helped a lot of people, but they feel like um, they just have either imposter syndrome or they have something like that going on where it's like they feel in some way, shape, or form like they can't, it's not valid for them to charge for their advice. Mm. And, and, and actually, in a weird way, that's actually very selfish. Because if you actually mm. have something to offer to people and they are willing to pay for it and you're not charging them, then that's probably putting you in a position where you can't help as many people as possible. Um, and right. so it, it, in a weird way, it's kind of selfish, right? So um, mm. I, a lot, I've seen a lot of women have to deal mm. with that issue of deeply undervaluing themselves and learning how to ask for what they're worth. The other sort of angle there, and this is kind of split evenly between men and women, is the a lot of people, spiritual types especially, um, they they have a very negative association with money and with business, and so mm. they 
they they run their lives in a very haphazard way, and they they're very kind of almost self-destructive around money and business. And um and look, you can be money focused and business focused and be awful, or you can just use money and business as a tool to yes. efficiently, effectively provide your knowledge and wisdom. And I think uh, the coaches that I've seen that are really successful are the ones that, that don't have e either a negative or a positive charge around money or business. They just see money as a tool and business as a, a framework, and that's it. Like they don't, they just use it so that they can have a good life and they can help as many people as possible as opposed to think, you know, having negative associations. Does that make sense? Awesome. Awesome. Listen, so, so you, you, you had really, uh, I think a good point. You talked about how uh, many folks undervalue themselves. I think that, that that's spot on. And so I'm curious if you have any input in terms of, for the person that's listening and they're like, shit, I, that's true. I, that's me. I, I, I undervalue myself. I don't really honor what I have and the gifts I bring. How do they break through that? Is there, is there something you learn for yourself? Is there, is there a, how does someone shift that uh, way of perceiving themselves and undervaluing themselves to truly own their value and say, you know what, I, I, I'm worth it. I'm worth charging X amount. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I'm laughing because, um, like, I've actually, in a weird way, I've actually had that problem too. Uh, I think almost, uh, yeah, almost every uh, creative has yeah. that problem, and, and and I'll tell you why. It's because if you have found what your calling is, what your gift is, mm -hmm. then usually it's actually it feels really easy to you, and so the, mm. a lot of times there's a guilt about charging for that. Like, for example, mm. I am, I've always been a really great storyteller and a really great at understanding sort of communication and, and, that, and framing and marketing, all that kind of stuff. It just, it comes so naturally to me. And, and mm. so when I, um, after I, uh, even when I was still writing uh, consistently, I had a lot of friends who happened to be running tech companies. And, you know, most people who run tech companies are terrible at media and storytelling, all that stuff. And so they would come to me and like say, hey, can you like help me with this? And so I'd look at their product and I'd look at what it did. And I'm like, oh, here's the story. And I would be like, it's this, this, this. And mm. like in a snap, I'd summarize it just because it came so clearly to me. So like I would just assume, okay, well, this is easy. Anyone can do this. If it's easy for me, it's got to be easy for everybody. And then they'd turn mm. around and take my slogans or my framing and they blow, you know, their companies with 10 extra sales in a year or something. And wow. one of my friends finally came to me and he said, Tucker, do you realize a buddy of mine who doesn't know you went out and hired a branding and a marketing firm and he paid them $250,000 and they did crap compared to what you did in an mm. hour for me. He's like, dude, what mm. are you doing? And that's when I was like, mm. oh, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I, should, uh, I should look at this a different way. So, so to, to bring us back to very specific advice for the listener, if you don't think your skill, or if you have a hard time understanding the value of what you do, look outside yourself. Go look at what people charge, other people who are not you, charge for what it is you do. And so then you can see what the market is. What is the price for that, you know? And, and once you understand, okay, like it, once I, I had that understanding, it was really easy for me to go look around at, at, at sort of 
marketing and branding and storytelling firms and see what they charge and realize all of them basically are charging five and six and seven figures for things that I'm mm. really good at. I'm at least as good as they are, if not better. And I was like, okay, I can charge this now. Or, or like, you know, mm. I may not think I'm worth it, but clearly the market thinks I'm worth Other people think I'm worth it. I mean, that's the core tenet of value. It's not what you think you're worth. It is what someone else is willing to pay. That is what value mm. is. And so that, that's yeah, how you figure out how you get past that. See what people are willing to pay. I love it. And really brings things into getting into relationship, I think, with reality as well. Not like the reality yeah. in your head, but reality. And uh, you know, reality doesn't lie. I love it. You talked about um, one of the second things you talked about in terms of uh, success is uh, doing or figuring out what you want to spend your time doing. But you said something, Tucker, that kind of stuck out to me. You said it, it, it sounded like don't follow your passion. It, it, at least it sounded like. So I want to clarify. Don't follow what you're passionate about. That's, that's just crap. Like find out what you want to spend your time doing. Now, yes. can you get clear about what you mean by that? You're saying yes. find out what you want to spend your time doing, but don't follow your passion. Like, What's the difference? And the second right, part so, of that so question is, let me just start the second part. The second part of the question is, and okay, then, okay how, how, how does someone actually authentically, you know, find what they want to spend their time doing and not just like what their father wants for them or what society, like yeah. how do they truly tap into that? That's a great question. So, um, okay, let me, let me I'll tell, I'm going to tell you a story to explain this. Because um, I, I think passion is very different than what you should spend your time doing. So to give you an example, I love wine. Like I am like, you don't know, like those obnoxious people who like look at every page in the wine list and argue with the sommelier <laughs> about different vintages and, and different producers and like they can talk endlessly about wine. Like I'm one of those people. Like my wife and I, mm. my wife is too. My wife and I, the, the main decision maker in buying our house was the house that, that had the biggest seller because we have so <laughs> many, we have so much wine and we're, you know, we're collectors. We're, we're true. I mean, I, I am about as passionate about wine as I can be about something that's not like a relationship, right? Wow. Um, but now, now, so, so of course people would think, oh, well, why don't you work in wine? Okay, let's examine what that looks like. If you're a sommelier, then you have to be in a restaurant all night. You've got to dress up in a suit. You've got to talk to people who don't know wine. All of that sounds terrible to me, right? So then the other question is, well, why not make wine? Well, if you make wine, you're basically a farmer. And I don't, I, I, like, I mean that very literally. All the best winemakers I know spend 90%, actually, they spend 70% of their time farming. 20% of their time on sort of uh, uh, marketing and branding and the other 10% of the time on government and, and bullshit. And like, I hate all of those things. I don't want to be a farmer. I don't want to, to spend my time marketing, branding wine. I just want to drink wine and talk about wine mm -hmm. and experience wine. So, so what I do is I pay for great wine from the best winemakers because all the best winemakers, I'm going to tell you something, because I know a bunch of them. We, we, my company does books with actually two of the best winemakers in the world. We're doing them right now. And both of them say the exact same thing. They both love wine, but their true, true thing that they, they are passionate about 
They're passionate about farming. They love dirt ah. and soil and land and sun and grapes and growing. That's what they love. And, and wine, they picked wine because wine is a, can be a very beautiful expression of farming. It is one of the most beautiful expressions. But, like, but. they're less passionate about wine than they are about farming and about winemaking. Mm. And so, like, yeah. that's the mistake I think people make, you know? Like, I don't want to spend my days around wine. I just want to drink wine. Now, whereas mm. I do actually really like storytelling. I really like coming mm. up with stories. I like writing I like creating processes around writing, all that kind of stuff. I enjoy doing the work of writing. Whereas a lot of people I talk to who say they want to write a book, they don't actually want to do anything associated with writing a book. They just want to have a book, right? They want to have a book on the shelf that's already done. And that's cool too. It's sort of like me with wine. Like if you love wine but don't like winemaking, just buy the wine and drink the wine and that's cool, right? So that's Mm. the difference. I believe your passion should, should mostly be your hobby, and then your job should be the work you love doing. Now, if those two things can overlap, then that's like the mm-hmm. greatest thing ever, but I think very, very few people uh, overlap, and I'll, I'll tell you why. There's a great saying. When you marry your mistress, you leave a hole, you know, and, and, and like you leave a vacancy, I should say. And, and I feel like wine. I feel like wine is my mistress. But if wine was my job, I would hate. I would hate wine. You know. Right. And and right. and so so I spend. So what I do, man. That's why I got such a great life. Is I spend all day mm. doing work I enjoy, telling stories, mm. helping people write books, um, helping frame ideas. I love that. And then I go mm. home to my wife and our kids and we drink great wine with dinner and we have a, a, a great time. So I, every day I have mm. my passion and uh, the things I enjoy doing, but they're not the exact same thing. Yeah, so you have the best of both worlds, which is cool. That's, exactly. that's actually a, a, a different perspective, you know, for sure. I love it. Um, you talked about storytelling and, um, I mean, man, you've, you've written a few books and told some stories. So first, actually, let me jump into uh, uh, kind of more the marketing side first, and I want to jump into the creative aspect. Uh, your books was a New York Times bestseller, which, you know, is not an easy thing to do. Um, sold over a million copies, not an easy thing to do. I came up with a book and man, it's, it's, it's not easy selling books. And so I'm curious to, to tap into your brain and see what wisdom you have for the listeners around that. So I guess what was the key to this, to your success in making your book? Number one, to, 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 I would say first creating your book, then marketing your book into a number one New York times bestseller and selling over a million copies. Like what's the key, man? Because it is, it is not easy selling books. And so I'm curious what you did and I'm curious about your process to 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 produce and then market it into a a real successful piece. Okay, so um, uh, it's a great question, but the way you ask the question is the way most people do, and I think the, a lot of the problems people have with understanding books is literally the way that they think about it, right? So mm-hmm. notice that you asked first, how do you write a, a book? And then basically, I'm kind of you know, summarizing. 
then how do you market yeah. it? I, I would actually tell you, you have to go the other way around. You have to think mm. about marketing before you write the book. Um, or, and then that's the key to writing the great book. And let me explain what I mean. I, I don't mean think about how you're going to market your book, like strategies, like, you know, mm -hmm. podcasts or YouTube or no, no, I don't mean that at all. What I mean is you need to think about your audience, right? The first mm -hmm. thing you need to think about is what are you trying to say and who is going to care and why, right? And so if you can't answer those questions really well, then chances are there's not a market for your book. And so no matter what you write, it's not going to do very well. Whereas if you mm. can answer those questions really well, then chances are very high you're going to write a book that's going to resonate with a lot of people and that'll do very well. Mm. So in fact, most mm. of, the, of the best book marketing decisions are actually made before you start writing the book based on who, who you're trying to reach and what you're trying to say to them. Right. And gotcha. here's the reality, man. I've actually sold, um, uh, uh, not to be a, a bragging kind of jerk, but, uh, I've actually sold, my books have sold 4 million copies and I've written four New York times. With oh, them. wow. And the reason, the reason for that man is honestly, because the only reason I, I wrote stuff people wanted to read. I, I know it mm. sounds like, like really simple to say, but most people yeah. who approach books don't approach them from the reader perspective. They think, well, mm. seriously, I mean, dude, this is what my company does. We help people write books. We've helped a thousand, a thousand people write their books in four years. And so many mm. people come to us and they, the, the first thing out of their mouth is, I think I have a great book in me, or I have a story to tell, or I want to write a book. And it's like, mm. there's nothing wrong with saying that, but the sentiment is about them. It's not about the right. reader. And the right. only way you're going to sell books or anything is to make it about the person buying that thing and not about you. Mm -hmm. Got it. So first step, really get clear on the marketing aspect and really know who your audience is, make it about the reader so that you can create a, a topic or concept that is really relevant for what the reader wants. Exactly. Because once you do that, if you've got a book that you know – and so, so it's funny, let me, I'll, I'll dial it back like a little bit and explain. So most of the people who come to us, almost all of them, all of them literally write nonfiction and almost all of them are, are business people or coaches or consultants or, or people like that who um, are trying to use the book to help them in their career or business in some way. And so, but so many of them start off thinking about themselves with the book. And what we have to do, and, and they think broad too, like, okay, I want to go write a book that a million people are going to read. And mo here's the reality, man. Most people don't have anything to say that's appealing to a million people. And I don't mean that as an mm. insult or, or, mm. or a judgment. I just mean that's just a reality, right? But almost everyone has something to say that's really interesting to five or 10 or 50,000 people or maybe 100,000 people. And so it, if you try and write a book for a million people and you fail, it's, no one's going to really want to read it. But if you go after mm. only 50,000 people and you write the perfect book for those 50,000 people, then probably all of those 50,000 people or something very close are going to read it. And so now mm. you become like you become the guy or the woman to those 50,000 people. Uh, and, I mean, I can give you a million examples from authors of ours um, who, who have done that. 
instead of trying to go broad, instead of trying to be big, they instead, they focus on who, what community can they serve the best, and they write the book for them, and then the book does incredibly well in that community, and then a lot of those people actually can then expand out of that community. But it's right. very, very right. difficult to, I mean, I can't think of many things that are appealing to millions of people, man. Like, that's really mm. hard to do, especially in a book. Mm. Like, mm. I, I, I've, I've sold millions of books, and I did it with one genre, and then I've written seven books, but only four of them mm. sold well. Three of them I thought uh, would be popular, it. but they weren't. I was wrong, you know? Mm. It's very hard to predict, and I can, I can give you a list of 20 other authors, big authors, good friends of mine, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, et cetera, et cetera, guys who sold millions of books who've written books that didn't do well either because they misjudged mm. their audience because they misinterpreted what people actually wanted uh, didn't did not want to read. Mm. So I'm curious, like, like you, one of your your books sold, let's say, a million copies. Uh, mm-hmm. how, I guess how, how I'm curious, like, how did that happen? I mean, like, was there? So, okay, so for the, it was luck, man. Yeah, break it. Just straight up, break it was it luck. Down. How, how did that happen? Was there a formula? Okay, so, so here's what here. No, no. I w- dude, I wish there was a formula. There, is, I, I, I can give you a broad overarching formula, but not a specific step-by-step formula because it doesn't exist. Because if it did, if there was yeah. a specific formula, I would have written 20 books that have all sold a billion copies, right? So, um, all right. So, so I'll, I'll tell you how it happened with me, and, and then I'll give you the, broad, the, the broadest formula I can. So it happened with right. me, and honest to God, this is just the, the truth. It was luck. I happened mm. to, to say the right thing to the right audience at the right time. Like I started writing mm. in, in early 0102, like before MySpace even existed. And I just wrote true stories about the dumb things I did when I was drinking or hanging out with my friends. And uh, <laughs> stuff that ever, I, I, didn't think, I didn't even think it would be that interesting because I thought everyone did this. And a lot of people mm. do. I was just the first person to ever write about it in a way that was public and a way that was really honest and authentic and it resonated with millions of people. And so the, gotcha. if I had tried to write a book that was appealing to millions of people, what I would have done is I would have tried to write the good version of something or I would have, I would have written a version of something that already existed. Right. But instead, yeah, yeah. cause I wasn't trying to write to a bunch of people. I was literally writing for my eight friends. I just wanted to make my eight friends laugh and that's it. My book ended mm-hmm. up becoming something new and original and hit sort of a demand and a need that was there that no one else had identified. So honestly, dude, it was, I was, the, the, the best answer is I was lucky, right? Now, wow. how do you, wow. how do you replicate I mean, but, but Tucker, the great, I, surely, I mean, it, it can't be, was it all, I mean, a million books, I mean, that's a lot, there's got to be some things that you did to, to uh, grease the wheel, no? Or was it just like, shit, you really were just lucky? I mean, was there some things that you did well, to, like, well, amplify that? It, it, hold on. It's not lucky like I won the lottery, right? Like, so I didn't, like, walk yeah. down the street and find a book that, you know, sold a million copies. Like, it's not, it, it's not luck like something fell into my arms. Like, don't get me wrong. I worked hard. And, I, you know, like, what I did was I, I – I took, I wrote emails to my friends that were really, that my friends thought were really funny. And my friends encouraged me to share those. I put them up on the internet. Mm. They blew up. And, and it turned out that my friends were a pretty good proxy for millions of other people. And so, and mm. I worked very hard at, at writing and making it better, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, an opportunity came to me 
that was small. The, the, the metaphor I like to use is it's almost like, um, like you're playing football, like American football, and, and someone drops the ball. Well, just because someone dropped the ball doesn't mean you scored a touchdown. You've still got to pick it up and you've got to run it into the, into the end zone, right? Yeah. Okay, well, that's yeah. kind of what yeah. happened. There was a, I, found, I was walking along and I found, I found opportunity. I found the ball. But I had to pick it up mm. and then I had to run. So I did work very, mm. very hard, no doubt. But the, the opportunity was there for me to sell millions. Now, here's the difference. Like, gotcha. There are a lot of people who work just as hard as I did on their books. And they only sell mm. 5,000 or 10,000, right? So what's the difference between them and me? I think there's exactly. two differences. It's like what I said. One was, I was, one was luck. I was the right voice at the right time. That, like no doubt luck played an element. The second big thing though, is that again, I wasn't trying to sell a million books. I wasn't mm. trying to be popular. Because when you try to be popular, what happens is you just become a regurgitated version of what's already popular. And no one cares about buying stuff they've already seen. People want to buy stuff that's new or innovative or original. And so because I only cared about making my eight friends laugh, which is exactly what I was telling you five minutes ago about picking a niche audience. I just happened to do it kind of by accident, right? I, I only cared about making eight dudes laugh. And those eight dudes happened to have a sensibility that was super in line with a big unmet need in the market. And so that's why I sold. Right. The and so, so what someone else can do, what one of your listeners can do is exactly what I said. Don't try and sell a million books because what you'll do is just imitate what's already popular. Like, like for example, Tim Ferriss mm -hmm. has sold, I think five or 6 million books, like more than me. Right. And if you mm -hmm. try and be the next Tim Ferriss, even if you do a great job, you're not going to sell millions of books because there's already a Tim Ferriss and no one needs a second right. one, right? But if right, you become right. the first version of what you are and you, you provide a value to a group of people whose needs are, needs are not being met, that gives you the opportunity to then sell a lot of copies. And if you happen to say something that also hits with the right idea at the right time, that's how you get to millions. Love it. I love it. Become the first version of what you are, folks. You heard it from Tucker. It takes courage to be who you are, man, especially, I think, in a world that is constantly, you know, programming us and selling us and hypnotizing us. But uh, I, think, I think you're right on. Uh, you triggered a thought, Tucker, um, about, because you talk about luck. And I think, look, I think it's very honest of you just to say, hey, I was, I was the right voice in the right place. Obviously, you seize the opportunity. You ran with the ball. Uh, do you, I, I guess, how much in your life now do you attribute success to, like, do you set goals? Do you have intentions? Do you, do you just, you know, how much of, of, of your life do you just kind of flow and allow life to just spontaneously happen to you? You know, what, what is, what's your philosophy around, around that in terms of success, luck, uh, spontaneity, or just like, driving intention? Um, it's a good question. How important is goal setting? Yeah, so um, I try not to focus too much on goals because it kind of ties mm. back to what we were talking about earlier about focusing on the target versus the trophy, right? I, I mean, yeah. I, what I'll do is, is I'll understand, okay, like there's a general direction I want to go. 
Like right now, mm-hmm. I have my company, and me and my uh, my team, we're trying to build a billion-dollar company, right? And, and that's mm-hmm. pretty audacious, but but we understand that 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 at a minimum we want to be in the nine figures, but ideally we want to build a company that's worth a billion dollars. And so and mainly because if we build a company that's that big and it's worth that much, it just means it, it amplifies, it means everything we're doing is really working and we're creating a ton of value in the world. And it's kind of the marker that we use to, to sum up all the, the impact that we have, right? Just because it's easy to mm-hmm. understand. Um, and, and so that's the goal, but like, you can't get up every day and be like, okay, what do I do today to build a billion dollar company? It, it doesn't even really make sense. So um, what I try and do, I have a big sort of long-term goal, but then what I do on my day-to-day basis is I am very focused on the here and now. How do I get better mm-hmm. today? What, what do I need to do? And, and I build habits around this. Like I'm more focused. So put it this way. I'm more focused on habits than goals. Like I'm more focused mm-hmm. on, if I do all the things right today that I know I can do, then I'll win today. And if I win every day, then I know I'm probably going to get my goals. But if I just focus on Mm -hmm. my goals and not what I'm doing in the here and now, then I feel like I'm not really going to win either my day or my goals. Does that make sense? So I set up my day to kind of really make make sure I get at least a few things important done every single day. And if I do that, then everything compounds. And, and, and then mm. that's kind of why it's like writing. It's like, why do I write three hours every day? Because if I do that, mm. then I write two or three books a year. Like if you write, mm. you know, 500 words a day, um, that's thousands, that's uh, 500 words a day, even if you're only writing uh, 300 days a year. So you're taking, you know, weekends off basically, um, 500 mm. words a day, which is nothing. That's like a long email. That's 150,000 mm. words. That's two books, at least maybe three that's books. Two books. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's, that's two or books. three books. If you're right. Yep. 500 words is nothing, man. 500 mm. words is a legit email. Mm. It's nothing. Mm. You write three hours a day, like daily. Three. That's it. Three hours a day from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Okay, uh, I have a question about, like, w- what are some of the other habits that you have? So we can get to that in a second. But in terms of writing, you know, writing is not an easy thing. I think to, to write daily takes a lot of discipline. What's, what's the key to that? I, I, I mean, I wrote a book. I hate writing. I make myself write. I sit my, my ass down and just write. But I think a lot of people listening in, they want to write. They don't write. They're consistent. They're not consistent. It's up and down. Is it just easy for you, or or, or the times you don't feel like writing? Like, what's is there is there a key to that, that you're able to write three hours a day? What what what? How do you set that up? Um, so it, it, there's two different answers to this question. First off, um, I write every day because I am literally a professional writer, and so if you are a professional mm-hmm. writer, then you need to be writing. Not everyone mm-hmm. should be writing every day. It's just like I don't spend any time fixing my car. Why? Because that's right. the mechanic's job. And I pay the mechanic and he does a great job. So, I mean, that's literally why my company exists. We help people who don't want to have their hands on the keyboard, uh, who people who mm-hmm. want to write books, who have great things to say, but don't want their hands on the keyboard. We help them. We were a process to help them write their book and finish it and make it awesome, right? So you don't have to write every day if that's not your thing. But if you do want to write every day, then the, the, the techniques that we recommend, that I, um, I recommend, is that you, you do two things. You know why you're writing. 
right? So don't make your writing about you. Like you're sitting down to write for a reason. What is it? It's because I want to help someone learn something or I want to help whatever. It's about someone else, not about you. So if you're writing about someone else, now that you can be expressing yourself and that's cool, but the writing, I mean, all art, all expression is ultimately about sharing. So unless you're, unless you're diarying, journaling in your diary, hmm. which is fine, and that's a different hmm. thing, right? But we're talking about writing that you're going to publish. Um, uh, so really focus on who you're writing this for, number one, because that helps, that, that, that will motivate you and help you get going. And the other big, big thing is you need to have a really, really, really small quota for the day. And I know that sounds super counterintuitive. Most people are like, oh, hold on, shouldn't I have a big quota? Like, what, is it more writing per day better? Actually, no, mm. it's not. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I actually recommend to people they should do 250 words a day. should be their, their sort of goal. Um, and I, I do 500 because I'm a professional writer. I've been doing this 15 years, so I better have a, a higher quota than most people. <laughs> but it, 250 <laughs> words is so short, that's basically like a Twitter post almost. I mean, it's like a Facebook post. It's nothing. 250 words is tiny. And so if it's 250 words, you never have an excuse not to sit down and write. Right, no matter how you right. feel, no matter what you, you know, what's going on, you all, you can always sit down and do 250 words, and that's how you create habits: is you make it habitual. You do it every single day, right? And so, if you do, if you write every single day, the the all kinds for some people, all kinds of good things are going to happen. And the way to do that is keep other people, the, the audience in mind. And give yourself a really low bar to hurdle with like a small quota. And that's it. Those are the two tricks and it works beautifully. I love it. I think it's so important because I think the why deals with the the motivation as to why you're doing it. But the small quota is something I think is often um, overlooked, you know. But I think when you have the small quota, you set yourself up to succeed. And what I found is when you hit that quota, whatever it is, working out, writing, even if it's small, uh, you build a kind of internal trust, the confidence, and it motivates you to, to keep going. And so habits are really important. It's the small things, folks, if you're listening to this conversation, this podcast with, with Tucker Max, it's the small things you do every single day that sometimes when you do them, they don't seem to make a difference. But when you don't do them, don't seem to make a difference either, but compounded over time, make a huge difference and set you apart. Tucker, mm-hmm. are there any other, um, like, are there any other habits that, like like strange or that we wouldn't expect that you do or you know i mean people will say oh i exercise i meditate you know all those things but are there any like weird habits or like really uniquely tucker max habits that you that you do that like they were key for you not really man i mean i'm i'm pretty (laughs) honestly my habits are pretty boring dude like i mean maybe this is well, you know, like, uh, um, I don't like, I really, really hate lifting weights and, and like that sort of exercise, but obviously for a man, especially, uh, uh, physical strength is extremely important to health and uh, to, to both mental and emotional health, but physical health, definitely. So, um, instead of, uh, lifting, I mean, I, I go to CrossFit once a week, but I mainly just do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA. So like I fight. Mm. Um, which is like, you know, I mean, like it's pretty well known now, but I've been doing it for a long time. And like when I first started doing that, whatever, eight years ago, people thought I was crazy, dude. Like people were like, what wow. are you, 
what do you mean you fight? And I'm like, yeah, I do, you know, I punch people for fun. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I I get punched too. So like, um, that's, I mean, that's kind of like one thing. Um, you know, I like, I got two kids now and they're both young and and, dude, most of my time, like weird things are like, they're not, they're just dad things, you know, like every day we got a pool in my house and my kids love swimming. And so every day we spend an hour in the pool and like, you know, oh, like nice. we play all these fun games. Like I have a football and I play keep away with them and we, or, you know, they jump off the, we got a big sort of trellis and they jump off the trellis in the pool. And we just do all these, these things that like, if you told me at 28 that I would have mm-hmm. fun doing that, I'd be like, what are you talking about? That looks stupid and boring. And now at 42, <laughs> it's the most fun ever. And I, I don't want to do anything else, you know? That's growth, brother. That's growth and evolution, man. Beautiful. Yep. You know, you, I, I, I had a thought. I have a couple more questions for you. I mean, I'm really loving this conversation. A uh, couple of questions. Uh, in terms of writing, in terms of creativity, in terms of, you know, uh, putting yourself out there, I, I, I mean, I do think it does take a level of courage because you put yourself out there, you set yourself up for people's opinions and you know, haters and people shredding you. And so I'm curious, you know, you've put yourself out there enough times, written books, movies, what have you, constantly putting yourself out there, speaking every time you speak. Uh, how, how do you deal or, or do you not care? But I'm just curious, how do you deal with um, moving beyond, let's say, uh, <laughs> you know, seeking other people's approval or validation. Cause I think what often stops so many people and, and I'm sure some of those folks listening in is the fear of what are people going to say and, and, and other people's approval. So is there, is there anything around your process around, you know, a lot of people don't share their writing because they're afraid, you know, they're so afraid of, yeah. of people's criticism. So how do you deal with that? And, and what advice can you give? Yeah, so I have a very specific way that I deal with that that works extremely well for me. Um, I just, I don't care what anyone thinks at all unless there's someone I know and I love whose opinion I trust and I value. So, like, if mm-hmm. my wife has an opinion, it matters to me. If, you know, mm-hmm. someone I work with has an opinion, because, um, you know, like uh, my company, uh, we call ourselves a tribe and we're all like everyone in the tribe is pretty close. So if they have an opinion that matters to me, um, you know, my best friend, et cetera, et cetera. But like, you know, if someone I don't know has opinion about me, honestly, that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with them. Mm-hmm. And so many people let you like, you're absolutely right about, I can't tell you how many authors that we work with who are like, oh, I'm afraid what people are going to say about my book. And then I'll say, okay, well, who? And they're like, you know, them. And I'm like, who's them? And they're like, oh, you know, people. And I'm like, what people? <laughs> I keep asking them. <laughs> and then either, either they can't tell me it's just like a vague thing or eventually it does boil down to one person. Oh, well, my mom mm. or my dad or my sister. And so like that's the other key is I keep the circle of care for me small and I don't let anyone in that circle who's a judgmental prick. And I don't care if you're family. I don't care what you are. If you're, if you're an awful judgmental person, which doesn't mean you can't disagree, because God knows my wife disagrees with me all the time. It's not about disagreement. Mm. It's about do I value your opinion? And if you're just a judgmental person, then that, you're just not a very good person. You're unhappy with yourself, and that's cool, but you just can't be around me. 
And so, like, uh, but a lot of people are afraid. They would rather be miserable with what they know than happy with what they don't. And so they will just stay in their little miserable position and not write a book or start the company or do whatever it is they want to do. And I'm just not willing to do that. So um, I just keep my circle small and I keep judgmental people out. I love it. Simple, man. Simple. Not always easy, but simple. And I think I yep. think it's right on having having the discernment to respect yourself enough. And ultimately, look, I, folks, as you listen to this conversation, if you have gifts to give and things you want to share with the world, remember that uh, other people's opinions reflect more about themselves than it does about you. And it's based on people see you through the lenses of their own conditioning, their own childhood, their own stuff. And so, don't take it on just because someone has an opinion about you doesn't mean it's reality. Um, Tucker, I'm curious before I ask my final question. Um, when you look at the world today, we're going through so many changes, the technology, internet, the government, politics, just the world moving so fast. Um, what do you, what, what are you, what are you most excited about? And like, where do you see opportunities? Where do you see the greatest opportunities that excite you? Man, there's so many. <laughs> There's so uh-huh. many opportunities in the world right now. It's it's I, it's not even close. Maybe We're living in the, the 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 time of the greatest opportunities of all time ever by far. It's not even mm-hmm. close. Like mm-hmm. it, I I don't even understand how to relate to people who aren't positive now and aren't like and just like, super excited about all the opportunities out there and all the things they can build and all the things they could do. It's mm-hmm. remarkable actually. I don't know if there's any one that I'm most excited about. It's hard to say. I mean, I guess mm. me personally, yeah. I just feel like it's it's slow, but we're moving ever, ever, ever closer towards a world. It is slow and inconsistent. So, like, what I'm about to say is not a blanket statement, but I feel like we're moving closer slowly, inconsistently to a world where people are freer to do and be to do what they want and be who they want to be. And that is, I think, the best, most remarkable thing. Um, and every day we get a little bit closer. Um, and I'm just, I'm excited, like, to be part of that, you know, like to, to build a company that helps people turn their ideas into books is a small part nice. of that. Um, and, and it's not the only part. It might not even be the most important part, but it is a part. And, uh, it's just exciting, man. It, we're, we're getting closer and closer to, to the point where humans can actually be more human than ever in a weird way. I don't know how else to say mm-hmm. it, but um, it's, I don't know. I'm, it's, it, it's a great time to be alive. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting time to be alive for sure, man. Listen, if there were, uh, you shared a lot in this conversation, bro, and uh, really, really appreciate it. Uh, just, just your generosity. Your, your. You've been very raw and real, honest, and a lot of practical advice you shared from your life and your learnings. Uh, I'm curious if there were, if you were to distill, and and you know, you said when you were 20, 28, you had certain priorities, certain you know way of thinking. Now, 42, being a father, having two kids, married. If there were, based on your experience, three key life lessons that maybe the most important lessons you've learned in your life, obviously there may be more, but if you were to try to distill them down to let's say three lessons that if you would pass these lessons to your kids and your grandchildren, like things you've learned in your life, I'm curious what those three main lessons would be that you pass on to the next generation. 
Well, it's funny because I have kids and I'm, and I'm trying to teach them this stuff now. So mm. what are the three things that I focus the most on with my kids? All right, yes. I'll, I'll tell you number yes. one. The number one thing I focus the most on with them is trying to help them, is making them understand that they are responsible and accountable for their lives. Like mm. that is the most important thing. Like that, like I, I absolutely do not baby them. I do not. I mean, of course they're children. So like there's only so much they can be responsible for, but like, you know, just for example, when my, my four-year-old son comes home and he, he loves to be naked in the house. So he takes all his clothes off as soon as he gets home. Totally fine. But then he, he knows he's got to put his clothes in the la- in the dirty laundry room, right? He can't just leave them by the door because if he does, someone else has to clean it up, right? And same with, like, everything. Like, my daughter is 18 months old, and when she spills her, her milk, which she does all the time because she's young, no problem. She knows where the towels are. She's got to go get a towel, and she's got to clean it up, you know? Um, and, and it's just it's – not, it's not even, like, a, a thing. Like, I don't get angry about it. It's just it is who we are as a family. We take mm-hmm. responsibility for ourselves, and we're accountable for our actions. And, and that, that is the number one thing most people – most people go through life living like sheep, and I want my children mm. to be shepherds, not sheep. And, mm. and shepherds are accountable and responsible. And so that's number one. Number two is um, I try and help them understand their emotions. And I'm not mm. the best at this, but just at a minimum, like when they're sad, I try and like, you know, explain, okay, uh, you know, I try and help them understand what they're feeling and then help them sit with it in the moment so they can experience it and then move past it. Instead of pushing nice. the feeling away or denying it or anything like that, it just try to help understand it and then um, like kind of learn what you have to learn from the emotion and then move on. So that would nice. probably be number two. And then number three, um, number three would actually be, I don't know how to summarize this, maybe like the rules of life. It's more initiative, I guess. Like being responsible and mm. accountable does not necessarily mean you take initiative. But for number three, um, I try and teach my kids they can basically create, they can take the initiative to create the world that they want and the life that they want. So, for example, like when my son wants a toy, uh, we don't buy it for him. We, ever since he was very little, we have the conversation, hey, you, you know, like, he's like, hey, can I have that Transformer thing? And it's like, yeah, if you have money, you can buy it. And, and you know, we talked to him about money, you know, seriously, like early on. And then eventually he understood, like, okay, he's got to earn money. And so the, the way he figured out he could do it is he can make art at his preschool and he can sell it to, to his grandmother or to us, right? <laughs> and so he figured that out. And then, like, so, but it, it's, like, very simple thing. Of course we give him gifts and stuff. But anything that's sure. not, like, birthday, Christmas, whatever, he's got to mm. earn it himself. He's mm. got to take initiative and create that in his world. And so what ends up happening is the things he cares about, he works a lot on and he takes initiative and he creates that stuff and the things he doesn't, he doesn't. And so what, what it's ultimately teaching him is to, it's, it's teaching him how to be an entrepreneur, uh, but not just yeah. an entrepreneur of business, an entrepreneur of life. You know, so Love if you it. add the, like sort of initiative plus emotional intelligence plus accountability, that's going to be, mm-hmm. I think they're going to be pretty formidable adults. They're they're going to be solid, man. From what from what I'm hearing you say, the the element of responsibility. I'm always fond of saying, look, no one owes you anything, and so the fact you're saying you're responsible for your life, the emotional resilience, 
and uh, maturity and, and ability to deal with your emotions. And uh, what I'm hearing in the third one, as you're talking about the initiative, is also I think you're training your kids, uh, which is a skill we all need to cultivate, is in resor- being resourceful as well, which, yeah, uh, which I think absolutely. is re- really powerful. Beautiful, folks. Folks, you heard Tucker's three key life lessons that he teaches his kids. I think we can all uh, implement them and benefit from them. Tucker, is there one, um, you know, I'd just like to, for all the listeners to be able to apply, immediately apply uh, the conversation. Um, is there, like, can you just assign everyone a simple homework assignment? Like, a spe- if there's one specific thing that they can go do right now as a homework from this conversation, like, what's, what's the homework you can give them? Um, all right. Well, I, I'll give you one, but it's it's going to be tough for a lot of people. Um, Let's do it. It's very Let's specific, but it, it 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 might open up a can of worms that a lot of people don't don't want to open. But um, the, I, there, my bro. wife and I do this all. My wife and I do this all the time. So just sit down and ask yourself, where are you trying to get to in your life, and what are you doing to get there? Because if you actually ask that question, where are you trying to go and what are you do, actually doing to get there? Most people, if they really ask themselves that question, realize either they don't know where they're trying to go and or they aren't doing anything to actually get there. And so that question will make you really take stock and examine your life if you're willing. I love it. Where are you trying to get to and what are you do, actually doing to get there? That will put the truth in yep. your face, for sure. Yep. Folks, you heard the question. Yep. You heard the homework. The truth. Sit with that question. Where are you trying to get to? S- sounds like a simple question as Tucker asked it, but it is actually a very two very profound questions that will make you take stock and see the reality and get on the scale. Uh, and what are you actually doing to get there? Powerful homework, powerful insights. Uh, Tucker, what, what's, you know, look, firstly, thank you for coming on soul talk uh you've been a an awesome guest thank you for your generosity and you know time i know you're a busy guy up to a lot of stuff is there a, a how can people find out more about what you're up to i know you launched this amazing company book in a box and is there something you want to say about that and just how can people find out about what what you're doing so yeah we we actually just rebranded the company it's called scribe now so just go to scribe, uh, scribe. Yeah, scribe, like a, you know, like a scribe, like someone who writes down what other people say, which is basically what we do, right? Um, go to scribewriting.com. Um, that kind of describes what we do. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, I'm pretty easy to find if you're looking. Awesome. Awesome, man. We'll put, we'll put the, uh, the, the link in the show notes. Tucker, thank you again for being on Soul Talk been an awesome guest hopefully we'll have you back soon folks i hope you enjoyed the conversation i told you it'll be a little different from our typical soul talk conversations but i think there's a ton of practical real life uh, advice that tucker shared today please re-listen to the podcast share it with your friends and shoot me an email coop blackson at coop let me know some of your key takeaways from the conversation with tucker max and definitely follow tucker on social media and check out scribewriting.com and find out what he's up to I think uh, he has a lot more wisdom to share Uh, we'll see you folks in the next episode of Soul Talk see you soon love now
If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.